Colossians chapter 4. We're going to, uh, by the grace of God, finish the book of Colossians today, which is all of chapter 4. It's never been done in the history of the preaching ministry of Britt Merrick that I've made it through a chapter, so uh, we'll see what the Lord will do. But, but by grace, we're going to try to get all the way through the chapter and, and uh, wrap up Colossians. We did it in last service, so my faith level is very high. I think we could accomplish it again. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that is before us. Thank you for the incredible things that you reveal to us in it. And Lord, as we finish out this year, 2006, we see that you've been absolutely faithful in our Christian lives, Lord. There's not an area where you've let us down, nor in all of history, you've been faithful. And Lord, we would love to have 2007 be a year where we are faithful to you and your call upon our lives. And so Lord, we ask now that you'd speak to us at the end of this book and at the end of this year. And you would show us as your people as your children, as your servants, what we ought to be devoted to, what we should be purposeful about, what we should be mindful of, what we should be pressing into, what really matters in Christianity and in these last days. And so, Holy Spirit of God, please, anoint my lips to speak forth your word. We, we want to hear from you. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, verse 2 of Colossians chapter 4 says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. A couple points that we're going to know about prayer. The first one is that when it comes to prayer, the Christian is called to be faithful. Notice the word there chosen by the Holy Spirit. Devote yourselves to prayer. Devote has these connotations. It means to devote our time, our attention, and our strength to the task. Devote yourselves to prayer. Be faithful in it. Now, this is a call upon every Christian. It's to be a defining mark in the life of the Christian. Imagine it this way. If somebody at some time were to put you on trial and try to convict you of being a Christian, what sort of evidence could they gather? If they had to bring empirical data, clear-cut, observable data that you were a Christian... Would there be enough data? I'll tell you one of the things that would absolutely convict you is that you were devoted to prayer. Because the Bible says from beginning to end that this is to be the mark of the Christian that we give attention to, we give time to, we devote strength and fervor to the ministry of prayer. And quite frankly, if, if a court of law was trying to convict you of being a Christian and, and, and the evidence of prayer was missing, it'd be hard to convict you. Because it's, it's an indicator that someone is a Christian according to the New Testament by the fact that they devote themselves to prayer. That's the model of the early church. And the early church, they were the closest to Jesus. They were led by the apostles who walked with the Lord. And the one thing that the apostles learned from the Lord above and beyond everything else was the importance of prayer. Do you remember that it's the only thing they ever asked the Lord to teach them how to do? They never asked the Lord, oh, teach us that walk on water gig. You know what I mean? They never asked the Lord, oh, teach us how to raise people from the dead. But Peter did walk on water for a time, and the early church did raise people from the dead. But they never sought the Lord on instruction for those things, because those things didn't impress them nearly as much as prayer. There is something in the life of Jesus that, every, that just what rose above everything else was his prayer life. And so they came to him, and they said, Lord, teach us 
to pray. And the early church got it. They were devoted to prayer. In Acts chapter 1 verse 14, it says they were all with one mind continually devoting themselves to prayer. It says in Acts 2.42 that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And the leaders of the church said in Acts chapter 6 verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So we have as the model for the church that corporately we're to be devoted to prayer. As the local church, as a church in America, as a universal body of Christ, and as individual members thereof, we are to be devoted to prayer. Now this needs to be purposeful because this is a command of Scripture. And James told us to endeavor to be doers of the word. So as we end this year and we head into the year 2007, it means that as Christians who respond to the word of God, we've got to say, okay, what do I got to do to see to it that I am devoted to prayer this year? Because we're devoted to a lot of things, aren't we? You know, a lot of us are devoted to certain relationships and that's fine. A lot of us are devoted to our families and that's biblical and good. You might be devoted to your career or devoted to a certain hobby or, or whatever it is. So many of us are devoted to so many things and what reflects that is our schedule. Those things that are really important to us, we make time for them. And people often say, well, I don't have time to do this and that and the other. But the truth is, you have time to do whatever you want to do. And what you want to do and what's really important to you is revealed in your schedule. There's no arguing that. You can offer all the lip service you want, but what you schedule in is what is really important to you. So I schedule time in my life for my wife. It's a primary relationship in my life other than Jesus Christ. I schedule time in my life for my kids. I schedule time in my life for study, for the study of the Word of God in the biblical language. I, study, uh, I, I schedule time in my life for recreation. And I schedule time in my life for prayer. Because I found that if I don't schedule it, it doesn't happen. I can't wait for prayer to happen haphazardly. I'm too wicked. It doesn't happen that way. Prayer doesn't happen. Other stuff happens. We need to devote ourselves to prayer, the Word of God says, and to schedule it in. And so as a church, as Reality Carpinteria, a local church here, one of many, we've scheduled it into our church life. Tuesday mornings at 6 a.m., we have a corporate prayer meeting. We schedule it in, and we're here interceding for others. Uh, Sunday mornings at 7.30 a.m., we scheduled in a prayer meeting prior to our Sunday morning services. Tomorrow night at 7.30, the Thailand people are going to meet here and, and they'll get to pray and they'll talk about the praises of prayer as, as they have prayer coverage in Thailand. Thursday night at 7.30, the women are meeting to pray for the women's retreat. Wednesdays at 6.30, people meet to pray for the youth group prior to the youth meeting. So as a local church responding to the word of God, we've scheduled prayer into our lives so that it happens. We've made it important. You can look at the church schedule and say, okay, prayer is a priority. And Christian, it needs to be the same in your individual life then. Nobody can do it for you. Every individual has got to be devoted to prayer. The New Testament says it repeatedly. Devote yourselves to prayer. Pray at all times. Pray without ceasing. Praying without ceasing is a trip, you know what I mean? So is that in 1 Thessalonians 5.16. It doesn't mean that we walk around, you know, we're walking around all the time. Oh, Heavenly Father, we just, you know, it's not that. That'd be impossible and that'd be weird. But it means more an attitude of communion with the Lord. 
Prayer at its very core is just coming to the Lord. It's just communing with Him as a love relationship. There is a concept of asking from Him and standing in the gap for others, but, but the primary component of prayer is just coming to the Lord. Now, you can do that all the time. The New Testament says so. Pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.16. It means you just have that attitude where you're always connected with the Lord. And whatever comes your way, there is the response from your spirit to the Spirit of God. Lord, thank you for that. Or Lord, that's beautiful. Or wow, Lord, that was heavy. Help me with that. Or Lord, that was scary. Or Lord, I wonder about that. Or Lord, won't you teach me about that? Just flowing forth from you. And there's times in my life where I'm walking in that. And those are the most fruitful, wonderful times in my life. And when I get away from that, you know, I've backslidden to one degree or another. And what I've discovered about prayer is that the more I pray, the more I pray. The less I pray, the less I pray. Life is like that, isn't it? It's like you get into an exercise routine, you know what I mean? And when you start doing it, you're pumped up on it and you want to do it more and more and you're getting fit and it feels killer. You miss a few days, you never want to do it again. Prayer is kind of like that. It's, it's a strange thing. And so I've found that as I've scheduled prayer into my life, that prayer begets prayer. And when I schedule it in, and I make it a spiritual discipline, as every Christian should, it's a discipline. I schedule it in. I'm disciplined about it. I come to the Lord in prayer, that prayer leads to more prayer. And I find myself in that place of praying without ceasing, just communing with the Lord, talking to Him from the very depth of my being. And that's where the Lord will have you because the Lord loves you. You see, it's all about relationship with the Lord. And a relationship, it denotes that there's some exchange, there's some conversing, there's some back and forth. What sort of a relationship would a husband and wife have if they never talked? That wouldn't be a relationship. So the Lord wants to talk to you and he wants you to talk to him. The way that we do that wonderfully is prayer. And it's interesting about prayer is, well, it's like anything else in life. We don't often see results as quickly as we'd like to. Again, it's like exercise, you know what I mean? It's like that last five pounds, it just hangs on forever. You just don't see the results as quickly as you want to. Well, sometimes it's the same in prayer. But what we need to realize is this that God's delays are not always God's denials. Sometimes the Lord says no. And when he says no, he's wise and you ought to thank him. I've asked the Lord for some dumb stuff in my life. I'm thankful when he said no in his wisdom. Hindsight is twenty twenty. But sometimes it's not no. It's just, wait a minute. Just hold on a little bit. And so you need to understand as a Christian that God's delays are not always God's denials. He may just be wanting to increase your faith or increase your devotion or increase your strength because Isaiah 40 says those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. And we wait on the Lord as we're asking Him to move in a certain area of prayer and we're asking Him repeatedly and He builds strength and faith and devotion and intimacy into our life. It might be that we're having to wait because God is on his own time schedule. And I've found that God is almost never on my time schedule. He's just not, you know what I mean? And I just want things to happen right here, right now. But see, the Lord is outside of time and space. And he's always been outside of time and space. Therefore, the Lord is never in a hurry. And so when I find myself in a hurry, I've got to ask, wait a minute. Am I getting ahead of the Lord? Because I found that in the Christian life, it's not so much, can I run fast enough to keep up with what the Lord is doing? I found that usually it's, can I slow myself down enough to follow the Lord 
in what he's doing. Because the Lord's outside of time and space. He doesn't need to be in a hurry. And he's got perfect timing. And it's often not our timing. And so we find ourselves waiting. And waiting is work. We don't like to wait. It's work, so to speak. You know what I mean? You go to the post office. This happened to me the other day. You go to the post office. You pull up and there's a line. You're like, oh, gosh, I just need to just, I just, just one stamp. Get, I don't want to wait. We hate waiting. You go to your favorite restaurant and you pull up and you're starving and you smell the food and there's a line and the hostess says, it'll be one hour. And just, I don't have an hour. Do you know what happens to me when I don't eat? I need now. Food now. Is it just me? We don't like to wait. But when it's waiting on God, it's never wasted time. If God has you waiting, it is because He is working. And there is a work that is accomplished through waiting. It's not because God is too busy or He's got more important things. He's not saying, you know what, son, I just can't deal with you now later. It's not our Heavenly Father. It's because He is working behind the scenes. He's working in you and around you that He might work through you. He's orchestrating circumstances. He's purging things out of your heart. He's fortifying into your heart things that he wants there for the walk that he's ordained for you. And so if you find yourself waiting on the Lord, it's a good place to be. Persevere in prayer. Press in in prayer. Know that God is all wise and at the right time, he'll bring those things to pass that are according to his will. And so because of that, the New Testament tells us that we are to pray with importunity. It's a word that we don't often use. It's an old English word, but it means to insist with persistence. That's the attitude that we're to have in prayer. Jesus taught us that in Luke 18. It says in Luke 18 verse 1, And Jesus told them this parable, that men might learn to pray at all times and not lose heart. And then we have the parable of the persistent widow, who had her request answered because of her importunity, her persistence with insistence. And the Lord teaches us that we're to pray that way. We're to continually come. It's not one time, Lord, do this. He didn't do it well. I'm pulling out now. See, that removes us from the workings of God. The other reason that we need to persevere in prayer with importunity is because prayer is entering into the spiritual battle. And brothers and sisters, there's a spiritual battle going on all the time around us. There's a spiritual battle for the hearts and souls and lives of men and women and children. Do you understand that? Does anybody disagree with that? Raise your hand if you disagree with that. The Bible says that there's a spiritual battle happening for humanity. And when we pray, we enter into the battle. Isn't that what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 6.10 when he says, we don't wage war against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities and spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. And so he says in verse 18, pray therefore at all times. And so prayer is entering into the battle, the spiritual battle that's happening as you stand in the gap for other people, for God to extend mercy, for God to extend for salvation, for God to move and heal and restore. Satan doesn't want those things. And if you refuse to prayer, you don't give, you, you don't give priority to prayer, you don't schedule prayer, you don't devote yourselves into it, to it, what you become essentially is a sideline Christian. You're not in the ballgame anymore, brother. You've put yourself on the bench, you're a bench warmer. There's a lot of bench warmers in Christianity, unfortunately. I don't want to be one. I don't want a church to be one. I want to be in the game. The stakes are too high. And so when you pray, you're engaging in the battle. Now, do you remember in Daniel chapter 10? Daniel began to pray for revelation 
from the Lord about what the future of Israel would be. And he prayed and he fasted for 21 days. On the 21st day, the messenger angel came to him and said, Daniel, on the first day that you set yourself to pray, the Lord sent me to you with an answer. On the first day, 21 days ago? Well, gee whiz, angel, what took you so long? And he said, but the prince of Persia detained me. The prince of Persia being a demonic principality that was over that area, ancient uh, Babylon, modern day Iran. That was over that area and that demonic entity did not want the word of the Lord to get through to the Lord's servant Daniel. And so he engaged this angel in spiritual warfare. And it was so gnarly, the angel said that Michael, the archangel, had to come and do battle on his behalf. And then he came and delivered the message. But the role of Daniel was, number one, he entered into the battle. As soon as he entered into the battle, the Lord responded, because the Lord answers prayer. As soon as he entered in, the Lord responded. But then Daniel's responsibility was to persevere while the battle was going on. What if Daniel had given up on the third day? What if he had given up on the fifth day or the ninth day or the twelfth day or the seventeenth day or the twentieth day? The battle may have been lost. Because in some mysterious, incredible way, the Lord has invited us into partnership in his ministry and in the battle. And so we're called to pray at all times. But Daniel persevered till the 21st day. And in perseverance, the victory is experienced. So often we give up and so we don't taste the victory. You see, the victory has already been won through the cross of Jesus Christ. But we sideline ourselves from it when we don't devote ourselves to prayer. When we as Christians do what we're called to do and devote ourselves to prayer, we engage in the battle, then we taste the victory as we persevere in prayer. It's a wonderful thing. The second thing that we see about prayer is that we are to be watchful in it. it said there in verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it. So th- there's this idea throughout the Bible of being alert in prayer. Being alert in prayer. The first time that we really hear about it is in the book of Nehemiah. You should read it later on if you're not familiar with it. It's an awesome story. Uh, Israel sometime earlier had been taken into captivity. The city of Jerusalem had been destroyed. Nehemiah got a call from the Lord. While in the Persian Empire, he got a call from the Lord to go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They've been torn down for a hundred years. And so as the Lord often does when he wants to do a work, he raised up a man. And so Nehemiah went in response to the Lord. And as the Lord does when he raises up a man, he raised up people around that man. And so there were people partnered with Nehemiah in the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. But the surrounding enemies in the region didn't want to see Jerusalem, God's city, rebuilt. And so they came against the work. And it was at that time that the response to the enemy coming against the rebuilding of Jerusalem was prayer. We see it pictured here in uh, Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 7 through 9 on the PowerPoint. Now it came about when Sambalot, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed. They were very angry and all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. Now this is an actual, literal, historical account. But there's a parallel for it in our spiritual lives. You see, what happens to the Christian is that the Spirit of God, when you get born again, begins to edify you. It means to build up. We get our word edifice, right? A building. He begins to build you. And we get built together as a house of God, as living stones, as Peter wrote. And when your walls that were torn down in sin are getting built up in the strength of the Lord, the enemy hates it. 
When the gates of your well-being that were burnt down in the reality of sin get repaired by the Spirit of God, the enemy hates it. And just like the enemy came against Nehemiah and his uh, co-labors, the enemy comes against the church of Jesus Christ when people are getting healed and repaired and built up and set free, which is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so if you're getting built up in the Lord, expect the enemy to come against you. But look at what the response was in verse 9 of Nehemiah 4. It says, But we prayed to our God. And because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. So here we see the idea of being watchful in prayer. They prayed and they set up a guard. It's the same thing that Jesus said to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, pray lest ye enter into temptation. He said, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. It's the night before the cross. There's a gnarly battle happening right now. I want you guys to pray. He even said to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And so you had better pray and be alert or you're going to get messed with by the enemy. And what do we read in the gospel accounts? They failed to pray. They went to sleep instead. And the Lord came back from his prayer and said, what are you guys doing? I asked you to pray with me. I invited you into partnership with the spiritual battle that's going on. I asked you to pray with me and you're sleeping. Please pray. And the Lord went and prayed. He came back. They were sleeping again. And a third time they were sleeping again. Three times the Lord asked them to pray. Three times they went to sleep. Three times that night, Peter denied ever knowing Jesus Christ. If he had but prayed as the Lord commanded, he would have tasted the victory and the power of God. But in the failure to pray, there was failure in his walk and he denied even his Lord. It's interesting to me then that Peter in his first epistle wrote these words in chapter 5 verse 8. Be sober, be alert, because your enemy Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I mean, he had first-hand experience. The enemy just worked him in the Garden of Gethsemane because he wasn't vigilant in prayer like the Lord told him to. And the Word of God to you and I today, church, a church who is living in the last days, incredibly high stakes before us for the lives of children and men and women. The call upon you and I is to devote ourselves to prayer and to keep alert in it, to be spiritually vigilant, sober, engaged, because Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to someone to devour. Now, here's who the lion would devour in the plains of Africa. The herd is together. And when the herd is together and they're on the same path, they're generally safe. But who the lone lion looks for is the one who's lagging behind in diligence. He's distracted in some way. He's wounded in some way. He's out of it in some way. He's not where he ought to be. He's lagging behind in diligence. And the lion comes and grabs that one. That's easy prey for him. It's a picture of David on the roof when he sinned with Bathsheba. He wasn't at the battlefield where he should have been with his men. It's the Christian who is lagging behind in diligence, has heard the call of the Spirit to the church to devote himself to prayer and says, I'm too busy or it's not for me or I'm just not feeling it. The Bible doesn't say, are you feeling it, man? The Bible says, do it. And the one who's then lagging behind in diligence just sets himself up as an easy, easy target for the enemy. The third thing that we're supposed to, supposed to be in prayer is thankful. It says there, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. With an attitude of thanksgiving. And the Bible teaches that the correct way to approach the Lord is with that attitude of gratitude, with thanks and praise. What it does is it enthrones Him and it humbles us. 
It enthrones him and it humbles us. Psalm 122 says that the Lord is enthroned on the praises of Israel. And so when we approach him with thanksgiving and praise, it sets him on the throne, it humbles us before him, and it convinces our mind once again that nothing is too great for the Lord. And then that increases our faith. And then we're in the right place to make our prayer and supplication known to him. So the proper way to approach the Lord is with thanksgiving first. There are those dire moments of life where you just, quite frankly, don't have time. Like when Peter was walking on water and began to sink. He just said, Lord, save me. He didn't say, God of heaven and earth, I praise ye, now save me. He just said, Lord, save me. And there are those times, you know what I mean. But generally, we're to approach the Lord with an attitude of thanksgiving that is a component of prayer. And I found that when I don't feel like praying, which is a lot, to be honest with you, when I don't feel like praying, I practice the spiritual discipline of praise. I start to praise the Lord, think on and speak forth His attributes and His character, and it moves me to a place of prayer. That's the working of the Holy Spirit. That's the way it's supposed to work. And so maybe you're saying this prayer thing is hard for me. I don't know how to pray. Then just start to praise the Lord. Remember when we memorized Philippians 4, 6 together? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now I want you to know that when Paul wrote this to the church in Colossae, he was in prison. He wasn't on the Mediterranean, you know, sipping Mai Tais or whatever, writing this letter, oh, you guys should thank the Lord, because I am. He was in prison. And yet we know from the book of Acts that, that Paul praised the Lord when he was in prison. We have that account of him and Silas just praising God in the prison cell. And so it's with all authority that he says to them that they ought to be practicing thanksgiving. In fact, I want you guys to do something this week. Homework assignment, please write it down. I want you to read Paul's prison prayers. There's four, one, four of them in the New Testament where Paul prays from prison for others. Write it down. They're located in Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And Colossians 1, 9 through 12. We'll leave it up there so you can get them written down. I want you to read those because what you see is the incredible Christ-like selflessness. That he himself was in shackles, imprisoned for doing the right thing, for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and yet what came forth from him was not, woe is me, help me, oh why me? but praying for the spiritual blessing and well-being of others. And so I, I want you guys to read those prayers. It'll take you about 10 minutes. And then I want you to pray those prayers for someone else. This is an exercise in getting over ourselves. Just commit to praying those prayers for a person or a group of people for the next one week. Would you please do it? It's a homework assignment. I'll tell you what will happen. God will change the people's lives who you're praying for because that's what prayer does. And your life will be transformed, which is just a fringe benefit of prayer. Now, we see the last point for what prayer is supposed to be, and that is purposeful in verses 3 and 4. He says, praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, in order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Or maybe a better translation of verse 4 is simply, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. 
So our prayers are to be purposeful. What do I mean? Well, I mean we should pray for specific needs. Paul said, pray for me that a door to speak forth the word, that is the word of the gospel, might be opened. Pray for me. And so I, I think there's a time in the Christian life where you move beyond the prayer, Lord bless everybody, Jesus' name, amen. And that's not an evil prayer, but our God is a strategic God. You understand that? And our God is willing to give you prophetic and profound insight into what he's doing strategically. And, and then you can pray with purposefulness. Our prayers ought to be purposeful. So that means that you've you got to be into other people's lives a little bit to know what their needs are, to know what their hurts and their fears and their concerns are so that you can pray for them effectively. You need to be tuned into what the Lord is doing around the world, which is why we try to educate you concerning that once in a while here at Reality. Tuned in so that you could pray. You, you need to be in the flow of the Spirit. R.T. Kendall said this, uh, the, the task of every generation is to discern what the Holy Spirit of God is doing and then do it. So, so we need to discern and listen, Lord, what, what are you doing? In my family, what are you doing? In my community, what are you doing? In my church, what are you doing? In my workplace, what are you doing? And then we partner with the Lord through prayer when we're purposeful in those prayers. Also, Paul was asking for prayer for himself. So it's important that we realize that we are to pray for others. And that's the thrust of prayer as presented in the Bible. It's not wrong to pray for yourself, but in the Bible when prayer is spoken of, it's generally in the context of praying for others standing in the gap. And I think there's a wonderful freedom that comes to the Christian life when we finally get over ourselves and get into others. I think my Christian life blossomed wonderfully when I stopped praying for myself and I started praying for other people. And I've just found that if we'll get other focus, the Lord is faithful to take care of our needs. It's really the core component of Christianity. Christianity is about Jesus Christ and others. And so we're to be praying for others. And I think that we would do that more often, if we realized, I mean, if we really laid hold of the fact that prayer changes things, that it really changes things. Every time prayer is spoken of in the Bible, it's in the context of situations, circumstances, even nations changing. Prayer changes things. In the third and first century, there's a guy named Augustine. And uh, he was one of the early church fathers and he had some good ideas and he had some bad ideas. Uh, one of the ideas that he generally put forward was that God is going to do whatever he's going to do regardless of what you do. Theologians call it the Augustinian blueprint model of sovereignty. Forget about it. Basically, he just said, no matter what you do or don't do, God is sovereign, he's going to do what he's going to do. Now, that sounds very pious at the core, and there's something that makes us go, yeah, 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 that's, yeah, he's going to do what he's going to do, it doesn't depend on me at all. Sounds pious, but it is absolutely unbiblical. The Bible teaches that prayer changes things, and that because some, of some mystery of God, God responds to the prayers of people. Take, for example, Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, Moses was up on the mountain communing with the Lord, receiving the Ten Commandments, you know. And he had been up there some time. And the people began to worry. And they said to Aaron, who was a newly ordained high priest, they said, Aaron, give us a God that we can see. And so Aaron said, bring me your gold. And they brought him uh, all their gold and he melted it down and he made for them the golden calf. And he said, behold, your God that brought you out of Egypt. And they began to celebrate this false God and commit acts of sexual immorality around it. And so the Lord, seeing this, spoke to Moses on the mountain. 
and said, Moses, get down the mountain because your people that you brought out of Egypt are committing acts of immorality. Get down there, Moses. Notice the Lord is saying, Mo, your people that you brought out of Egypt, the Lord is bombed. He's just about ready to disown Israel at this point. And Moses is coming down and the Lord says this in Exodus 32, round about verse 7 or 9. He says, Moses, get out of my way because I'm going to kill every single one of them. Get out of my way. Now the Lord is absolutely justified in his anger. Righteous indignation. The Lord does not sin. And the wages of sin is death. There would be nobody in the universe who could have condemned the Lord for wiping them out at that time. Moses, get out of my way. I'm wiping them out. He would have been justified and right in doing so. But I love what Moses did. You know what Moses did? Moses said this. Lord, your people that you brought out of Egypt, Lord, have mercy on them. That's it. He asked the Lord to have mercy. And the Lord said, okay. And the Lord spared him. He would have been absolutely just and right in bringing judgment. But one, listen to me, one man, one man, stood in the gap for a whole nation and just said, Lord, have mercy. And the Lord said, okay. And he had mercy on them. And God is merciful in his very character. And so it's his prerogative to extend mercy. He would have been justified in wiping them out. But because one man asked, the Lord extended mercy. Now the New Testament says in the book of James, we have not because we ask not. The Lord is wanting to extend mercy. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of His willingness. He's wanting to extend mercy, but He invites us into the work. And so somebody had to ask, and Moses asked. And it says in Exodus 32, verse 14, And the Lord changed His mind. Now we are generally theologically uncomfortable with that because it says elsewhere in the Old Testament that the Lord is not a man that He should change His mind. And that's right. He doesn't change His mind like a man does. You see, a man changes his mind for one of two reasons. Either the man had a lack of information or he was mistaken. That God knows the beginning from the end. He knows the beginning from the end. There's no lack of information. And he is a perfect God. He doesn't make mistakes. So he doesn't change his mind like a man. It's just in the same way that God could be jealous and yet not sin. He's a jealous God, but there's not all the sinful connotations that you and I have. God can be angry and yet not sin. Do not project your sinfulness Onto God. We're made in the image of God, which means we have the same emotions, but ours are tainted by the fall. God changed his mind because one man prayed. Literally in the Hebrew, it means that he relented from an undesirable course of action. The course of action was to judge them and he was just in doing so. It was undesirable because God is a God of love and a God of mercy. When one man asked, he extended mercy. It changed the fate of an entire nation. Compare that to Ezekiel chapter 22. Verses 29 through 31. Once again, Israel has been disobedient to the Lord. And God says, they have disobeyed me once again and they've committed abominations in the land. I am going to judge and wipe them out. But then it says, I looked for a man who would stand in the gap and plead the cause, but none was to be found. And so God brought judgment on Israel at that time. He was right and he was just in doing so. But listen, 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 listen. 
He was willing to extend mercy if just one man would ask. He couldn't find a man in the whole nation to stand in the gap. You know what that teaches us, church? That teaches us that we have an incredible moral responsibility to pray for other people. We have an incredible moral responsibility to pray for our community because prayer changes things. And prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of God's willingness and he is willing to bring revival to our community. He is willing to save people in our community. He is willing to heal marriages and set kids free and do incredible works in our community and beyond. But will anybody ask? Is there anybody in the church who has devoted themselves to prayer? It's a calling on every Christian. And as a Christian, when you entered into this covenant, there's a tremendous responsibility, a moral responsibility, because prayer changes things. I think of Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, there was a father who had a, a demonized son. And he brought his son to the disciples. Now, it says in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, the Lord called the disciples that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority over demonic spirits. And then in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, he gave them authority over unclean spirits and he sent them out to practice that. They had cast out demons before. They were enabled to do so by the Lord. But then in Mark chapter 9, this guy brings his son and it says literally in the old King James, he brought his son, he said to the disciples, my son is a lunatic, can you do something? Some of you can relate. And so the disciples try to cast the demon out of this poor child. And listen, they were unable to do so. Thankfully, the Lord came along, just coming down off the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, what's going on here? And the man said, I brought my demonized son, my tormented son, to your disciples, and they weren't able to do anything for him. And thankfully, the Lord cast the demon out with a word. But later on, the disciples were a little miffed, a little disturbed, a little disappointed, no doubt, that they were impotent in that situation, that they were ineffective, that a child was in desperate need and they weren't able to minister the power of God. And they said, Lord, what went wrong? And he says in Mark chapter 9, verse 29, this kind only comes out by prayer. And some manuscripts add, and fasting. But the potent point mean is, this kind, there are some battles that are so intense, we've got to persevere in prayer. It doesn't mean that they failed to pray on the spot. Certainly they would have prayed at that moment. It means that they failed to persevere, maintain a lifestyle of prayer, stay watchful in prayer. They weren't walking in that attitude of prayer. And so when it came to the nitty gritty, when it came to that moment where they needed to be on point to work the power of God, they were unable to do so. They were rendered impotent. That, that terrifies me. It terrifies me that there are kids in our community who so badly need the work of the Lord in their lives and that we are the ordained representatives of Jesus Christ, every single Christian is, and that we, by not devoting ourselves to prayer, by neglecting the spiritual discipline, by not scheduling it in, by not persevering in it, would render ourselves impotent as the church of Jesus Christ. It's not how God ordained it to be. He's entrusted us with so much as his representatives, as his ambassadors. And the spirit of the living God says to the church of Jesus Christ, devote yourselves to prayer. I love the fact that Paul didn't ask for prayer 
because of his bad situation. Did, did you catch that? He didn't say, pray that the prison doors might be opened. He said, pray that doors might be opened for the ministry of the word. I love that. Think about that. So many times people, how can I pray for you? Oh, I got this ache and this pain and this and that and the other. And that's not the end of the world. I understand that we have those practical needs, but it wasn't the mindset of the apostle. The apostle didn't write and say, pray that these stupid prison doors would be open. I'm bummed in these chains. He said, pray that where I am, I have a chance to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, that changes your whole world. When you're no longer so consumed by your circumstances that you're rendered impotent, but now you're just so, just, just, just so charged with a vision for serving Jesus Christ that those are rendered meaningless. Who cares about my circumstances? I'm going to serve the Lord. Paul said, am I in prison? I'm going to praise the Lord in prison. And I'm going to preach the gospel in prison. The Philippian jailer and his whole household were saved because Paul was in prison. There were people in the household of Caesar who were saved because of Paul's imprisonment. He didn't say, pray for me that I might get out of this bummer. He said, pray for me that I could effectively make clear the gospel of Jesus Christ even in the bummer situation that I'm in. That is glorious. That is a huge lesson for you and I. I also love there that prayer and proclamation are tied together. Prayer and proclamation are tied together. They always are. That's why the disciples, the leaders of the church said in Acts chapter 6 verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. It's a waste of time to preach the gospel to hearts unprepared by prayer. Charles Spurgeon, who knows who Charles Spurgeon is? Raise your hand. Most of you know who Charles Spurgeon is. He's a, a pastor in England who lived 100 years ago. An incredible teaching and preaching ministry. It affects millions of Christians today and has for the last 100 years. Not a week of my Christian life goes by where I'm not blessed by something Charles Spurgeon wrote or said or preached or taught on. It's had a huge impact on my life 100 years later. So a worldwide impact concerning the Word of God. True story, someone once visited his church and wondering why it was so potent, why it was so powerful, why it was so profound, why God was moving so radically, began to inquire of Charles Spurgeon, what is the deal? And he said, you want to see our power source? And the guy said, yeah. Charles Spurgeon took him down to the basement and showed him a huge empty room. And he said, every time I stand in the pulpit to preach, there are 200 men and women in this prayer, in this room praying. Every time he preached the word of God, there were 200 saints interceding for the hearts of those who would receive. And those prayers are being answered today. The prayers of those saints have been answered in my life. As I have been blessed by the ministry of the word through that man. And that's why Paul said, pray for me. That I would know how to clearly communicate the gospel, he says in verse 4. And you guys, listen, I'm not too proud to beg. If it's good enough for Paul the Apostle and good enough for Charles Spurgeon, it's good enough for me. This preacher needs your prayers. God has asked me to preach his word in this community and I desperately need your prayers. It is just so much a waste to preach to hearts that have been unprepared by prayer. Saints, I need you to partner in this work. Now we have, right now as we speak behind this wall, there's two women in this back room praying as I'm preaching. First service, there's one guy. He's in that back room praying while I'm preaching. There's others who are sitting out here who pray while I preach and I see them and I appreciate that. 
Third service, there's nobody back there. In the right way, I'm jealous of Charles Spurgeon. I want 200 people praying every time I preach because I know it'll be so much more effective because prayer changes the world. More people will get saved. More people will fall under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. There'll be more repentance. There'll be more holiness in the walks of Christians. The world would change if the church would just devote themselves to prayer. And as your pastor, I'm begging you, I need your prayer. I'm saying the same thing that Paul said in Colossians. Please pray for me and others who are proclaiming the word. Verse 5 switches gears. He says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outside. Wow, I better hurry if we're going to finish this chapter. Verse 5, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Outsiders here means non-Christians, not outsiders in the bad sense. They just haven't been brought into the community of faith. Conduct yourselves in wisdom. That word conduct in the Greek is the word parapateo. Parapateo. It means to walk. It denotes the way that we live, the way that we act, the way that we speak. It's been said before, there are two reasons why people don't become a Christian. Either they don't know one, so they haven't heard, or they know one and they've seen. As I said last week, people have heard the gospel. They need to see the gospel. And so the Bible says, conduct yourself, parapateo, walk in wisdom in front of non-believers. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So in that thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may be ashamed on account of your good witness before the Lord. They're going to slander the church. They're already calling us hypocrites. Let's not give them any reason to. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. The Bible says, walk in wisdom. Just be mindful that we represent the Lord. And then it says, make the most of every opportunity. Literally, it means to redeem the time. It's the idea of buying up the opportunity. Listen to what Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says. It says, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. God has good works already ordained and set in place for you. Your job as a Christian is to walk in them. Some, will, some never will. And then 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says this, Each has been given a special gift. Use it, therefore, in the serving of one another as good stewards of the grace of God in its various forms. So the Bible says to you and I emphatically, each one of us has gifts, and each one of us has good works already ordained by God. And the goal of the Christian life is to walk in those good works to make the most of every opportunity, to buy it up, so to speak, literally, to buy up those opportunities, to be watching for them. Lord, give me just Holy Spirit eyes. You're just walking around, it's okay, where is it? It's like my wife. My wife is a crazy bargain shopper. Any women like that? I don't want to stereotype any of you guys like that. No. My wife is a crazy bargain shopper. My wife doesn't buy anything unless it's been marked down like 900%. She'll buy, she'll come home all the time and she'll take something out that she bought for somebody. She just did this yesterday, took out a Christmas present and she goes, look at this. I said, it's beautiful. And she goes, 200 bucks. Now, my wife doesn't pay 200 bucks for nothing. I know she didn't pay 200 bucks for it. She says, oh, it was marked down to 160 and then it was marked down to 70 and then it was marked down to 22 and I got it for $3. She is unbelievable. She's stretched a dollar till it screams. She's just unreal. 
But she's making the most of the opportunity. Why? Why? By the way, I exaggerated a little. Jesus did it. Hyperbolic statement, exaggeration to make a point. Anyway, very biblical. It is. It is. Anyway, my point, which has totally been missed, is this. Why don't we, with such fervor, devote ourselves to buying up the opportunities that the Lord has ordained for us? And it just means to start to look around and go, is this an opportunity? Every conversation, you know, the Lord really convicted me about that this week. And so I started just kind of being mindful of it. Just, okay, Lord, I know you're going to have opportunities for me. And between, on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, those three days, I had three divine appointments just out being around town to share the good news of Jesus Christ. One of them was an in-depth, long conversation about the difference between Islam and Christianity, the Quran and the Bible. Now, God had ordained that encounter from the beginning of the universe. The incredible thing is I could have just missed it. I, actually, when it happened, I was checking the surf. There's a new swell. I don't know if you saw it, but um, I was checking the surf and I was pretty into it. And this guy came up and started talking to me. And if I had not just, if I just had been, you know, just so focused on these temporal things, I would have missed that divine opportunity. And it planted seeds for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it did a work in this man's life. But it was just being mindful. You know, the Lord might have an opportunity. Now that's true for every single one of you. He's got opportunities in your life the idea is to be mindful of them. And, and that word opportunity could also be translated time. It's karos in the Greek. There's not an equivalent in the, Greek, in the English language for karos. It doesn't denote time like minutes and hours. It means a strategic moment. Our God is a strategic God who has ordained strategic moments for his kingdom and we're to buy them up. We're to redeem them. We're to lay hold of them. And to redeem means that there's a cost involved. If you choose to serve the Lord and to buy up those karas, those, those strategic moments, there's always a cost for serving Jesus Christ. But the benefits always outweigh the cost. Amen? So we need to not only be devoted to prayer, we need to be devoted to looking for these opportunities. Verse 6. Now, I know you're panicking because there's 18 verses. You know, we're, we're 50 minutes into the sermon. You're thinking, okay, he's only on verse 6. But trust me, we're going to pull it off. Watch. Verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. There's a way because of the wisdom of God how we should respond to every person. Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Be ready to give a response to anyone who asks you the reason for the joy that is within you. And that response is to have these two components in it, grace and salt. Grace and salt. Grace just brings the love of God and the favor of God and the mercy of God into somebody's life. Grace is like, that's okay that your cell phone rang. Salt is like, turn it off now, please. Grace and salt. Thank you for that example. That was Karas. That was a strategic moment. It's, it's, it's exemplified perfectly in Jesus Christ, who when the woman was caught in adultery, Jesus said these words to her, woman, I don't condemn you, but don't sin anymore. You see the grace and the salt? The salt is cutting. The grace is comforting. 
And both are to be together in Christian speech and in our opportunities with how we deal with the world. And you shouldn't neglect one for the other. We're to speak the truth in love. Woman, I don't condemn you. Don't sin anymore. Perfectly exemplified in the person of Jesus. Now, the last several verses are just Paul's salutations. It's neat that Paul had many ministry relationships. He'll mention some people here and we'll just read through it and we'll be done. But if you read through the New Testament, we see that Paul mentioned over a hundred people that were his partners in ministry, over a hundred people. So we saw that, we see that for prayer, uh, Paul, excuse me, he was devoted to people. Paul would attach himself to people and minister to the Lord side by side with them. And as we read through here, we'll just read through. He's going to have some kind things to say about the people. And I just want us to, in a private moment, before the Holy Spirit, so that nobody feels condemned, I just want each one of us, as we go through these, to be asking, would Paul have written that about me if he knew me? If I encountered the Apostle Paul and and he invited me into his ministry, as the Lord has now, and he wrote a letter, would he say these words about me? It's it's good for us to think about. So starting in verse 7, he says, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. So Paul sent this guy, Tychicus, along with Onesimus to deliver this letter to the Colossians. They also had one for the church in Laodicea and they also had one for a man named Philemon. You could read Philemon later on in your Bible. It's a book with only one chapter. But I just want you to note the wonderful things that the Lord said about these men. Tychicus was a beloved brother. He was a faithful servant and he was a fellow bondservant. And Onesimus was faithful. Men and women of God. God has called you into his work. Every one of you has a different context. The goal of the Christian life is to be faithful with the gifts, callings, resources, opportunities, and contexts that the Lord has given you. Your job is to be faithful with those things, whatever it is. And if Paul knew, you would he write, yeah, that was a faithful brother, a faithful servant, and a fellow bondservant. He goes on in verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas, his cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Aristarchus, we don't know much about other than he was in prison with Paul. But Mark, we know a little bit about. Mark was the one who wrote the second gospel, the gospel according to Mark, also called John Mark. And Mark is a young man accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey around the world. And his cousin Barnabas was also with Paul. Now, Paul and Barnabas were buddies and they were sort of peers and they ministered side by side. Mark was traveling with them doing the work of the Lord, but you can read about it in the book of Acts. When they came to a certain place, Mark said, you know what, this is too gnarly for me, I'm over this, and he went back to Jerusalem. He bailed out on the work of the Lord and he abandoned Paul and Barnabas. And when it came time for Paul's second missionary journey, he was talking to Barnabas, Barnabas, let's go on the second missionary journey, and Barnabas said, okay, well, let's bring Mark along again. And Paul said, no way, man. I'm not bringing that guy. He totally wimped out at a key moment in the ministry. He went running home to his mama and I'm not playing games here. 
We're talking about the lives of men and women. This is the ministry of Jesus Christ. And there's no place for that. I'm not taking Mark with me. He wimped out. He was unfaithful. And Barnabas says, hey man, this cat's in my family. Give him another chance. And Paul says, I'm not giving him a chance. This is the ministry of Jesus Christ. I will not take him on this missionary trip. He stuck to his guns. And at that point, these apostles, Barnabas and Paul, they parted ways. Paul said, brother, if you want to go with Mark, you go that way. But I'm going this way and I'll find a new guy. And he took Silas along with him to minister. So Mark kind of blew it at one time. But what's neat is now we see that Mark is together with Paul again. It's been years now. Yeah, he, he cheesed out in the ministry and he failed at one time. But now he's come back to the Lord. And he's come back to serving the Lord. And Paul has brought him back in. And, and now he's a blessing to Paul. In fact, Paul would say at the very end of his life, in 2 Timothy chapter 6, I think it is, he would, send, so he would say, send Mark along with me because Mark is a help and a comfort to me. I love the picture of reconciliation and of second chances. And you know, some of you, you once walked with the Lord in a place of ministry. It might have just been your normal secular job, but you were just mindful of the kingdom of God and the work of God. And then you've got distracted by the things of the world or afraid or the cost seemed too much and you bailed out. Come back to serving the Lord again. It may have been 20 or 30 years. The Lord will gladly take you back into his service. He'll, he's ordained good works. He will gladly put you in the midst of them again. Then he says that he also had with him in verse 11, Jesus, who was called Justice. That's, Jesus was a common name at that time. Uh, these are the only fellow workers from the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, that is Jews. And they proved to be an encouragement to me. They were an encouragement to Paul in his ministry. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings. Now look at Epaphras. Epaphras was in Colossae. He left there and went to Rome to tell Paul about the Gnostic heresy that was penetrating the church. And that's why Paul wrote this letter. Now, Epaphras is staying on with Paul, but listen to what Paul says about Epaphras. Could this be said about you and I? He says about Epaphras, he is always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. That word laboring is where we get our word agonizing. That you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a deep concern or much toil and great pain for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Aeropolis, the surrounding cities. Could that be said of you and I that we have great toil and pain and concern for anybody other than ourselves? Because that's the call in the Christian is that we would devote ourselves to prayer and selflessness. And at the end of this book, we have just an incredible example. He was hundreds of miles away from them, but he was laboring, agonizing, toiling in prayer for them. Christians, I encourage you with all humility and by the Spirit of the living God to get over yourselves and to get into somebody else. Find out what somebody else is going through in the world and start to labor for them in your world, and start to labor for them in prayer. God will give you the grace for it. He'll give you the strength for it. He'll give you the insight for it. He'll give you everything that you'll need if you'll just be obedient to devote yourself to prayer. Verse 14, he says, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. You know Luke. He wrote the gospel according to Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. He was a professional. He was a physician. And yet he seemed to find plenty of time to serve Jesus Christ. And then he says, and also Demas sends his greetings. Now, he doesn't commend Demas here. Demas was on the road to backsliding. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Paul writes a few years later about Demas. 
that Demas had abandoned him because he loved the world too much. As a pastor of this church for three years, we've seen dozens if not hundreds of people come and go. The Bible said it would happen, but it never ceases to break my heart. People come and they walk for a while and then they just get distracted with the things of the world and they just bail out on the Lord and the people of the Lord and the work of the Lord. There's some great men in this chapter. This is not one of the success stories. We don't have record of him coming back. We have record of his departure. Verse 15, Greet the brethren who in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. And when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. As I said, Tychicus and Onesimus delivered three letters. Two of them became scripture. The other one was not ordained by God to be scripture. Verse 17, And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. And that's the word of the Lord to you and I. Take heed to the ministry that you have in the Lord and fulfill it. That word fulfill in the Greek is plerao. It means to fill completely. And in the tense there, over and over again. Every one of you has been entrusted with a ministry from the Lord. The goal of the Christian life is to fulfill it. Are you? In the last verse of the book of Colossians. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Paul would dictate his letters to his secretary and then he would always sign them in his own hand and that was his authenticating uh, signature. And then he says, remember my imprisonment or literally chains, grace be with you. I just imagine Paul, as he had just dictated this letter by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he went now to write this last verse to sign it and as he grabbed that pen, those chains rattled and he looked at those and said, wow, by the way, remember my chains. Grace to you. Don't worry about my chains. Remember my chains. And I desire grace for you. That's our last homework assignment. Is that we would remember this Christmas season. Our brothers and sisters around the world who are imprisoned for their faith. It says in Hebrews chapter 13, Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are also in the body. So here's what I want you to do this week. Every single one of you. Once you go to this website, prisoneralert.com. Prisoneralert.com. When you go there, there will be pictures and stories about Christians who at this moment are imprisoned for their faith in Jesus Christ. And what you can do is write them a letter. And they have means by which they will deliver letters to these people. Every one of these pictures is a real person who at this moment is imprisoned for their faith. The command of the New Testament to you and I is that we remember those who are imprisoned. And so I'm giving you a homework assignment. Go to prisoneralert.com, choose one, and write them a letter. Encourage them. They are in prison for Jesus Christ, and this is a season when we celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Encourage them in the faith. Lift them up. Let them know that there's someone in America praying for them. Begin to labor for them. It's very biblical. We need to be devoted to those who are in prison, devoted to the ministry, devoted to people, devoted to those divine opportunities, and devoted to prayer. And that's my prayer for our church in 2007. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord, for these words today. They're awesome, Lord. I just pray now, God, that you would come and help us to be doers of the word. 
that you would help us to live these things out. Lord, we need your grace. And we need the strength of your Holy Spirit. So Lord, give us insight, wisdom, discernment, and knowledge. Give us a passion for other people. Give us purpose in prayer. Teach us to persevere in prayer. Lord, wouldn't you teach this little church how to pray, please? Teach us to pray, Lord. Give us passion for others. Knit us together in ministry relationships. Let it be said of us, They were good servants of the Lord. They were faithful brethren. Accomplish these things in us, Lord, for your glory and your kingdom. Prayer team is up here. Communion is here. Let's press into the Lord.